He's been called the best historian you've never heard of, but his impact on generations of public historians has been profound, including on ECW. I'm Chris Mikowski, and today on the Emerging Civil War podcast, we'll talk with historian Greg Mertz about his retirement, his writing, and his plans for the future today on the Emerging Civil War podcast. It seems like Christmas for emerging Civil War book lovers. At least that's the case for me. We've got a bunch of titles coming out here this spring. Most recently, Dwight Hughes's Unlike Anything That Ever Floated, The Monitor and Virginia and the Battle of Hampton Roads. New from the Emerging Civil War series. You can get it now wherever excellent books are sold or from our publisher at SavisBeatty.com. If you order through them, they'll give you a free signed book plate and everything. Also, from the Engaging the Civil War series through Southern Illinois University Press, Diana Dretzky's book, The Bonds of War, a story of immigrants and esprit de corps in Company C, 96th Illinois Volunteer Infantry. So we've got that out now, too, and you can get that through siuppress.org. And then we've got our new book by Mark Bielski, um, a Mortal Blow to the Confederacy about the fall of New Orleans in 1862. That's shipping from the printer now. And Sean Chick's much-anticipated Grant's Left Hook, the Bermuda 100 campaign, is at the printer now. So look for that uh, coming up next month. So lots of great stuff from Emerging Civil War for book lovers, and we'd love to have you read along with us. Welcome to the Emerging Civil War Podcast. I'm Chris Mikowski, and joining me today is my good friend and mentor, Greg Mertz. And Greg is retiring after eons with the National Park Service. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I, I exaggerate and say eons, but you've been there how many years now? I've been with the National Park Service for um, 40 years and um, been here at Fredericksburg now for almost 37 of those. Uh, and it's literally generations of historians that you have had an influence on and an impact on. Um, a couple of years ago, Emerging Civil War recognized you with the uh, General Brigadier Stevenson Award for contributions to ECW because of the many, many ECW folks that you have had the chance to mentor and work with over the years. I just ask you to take a rough stab, totally off the cuff. How many people do you think you have had the chance to shepherd through their park service experience over the, the years? Well, let's step up as you talk about different generations, of course, you and your family, you and your daughter, both. There's two generations <laughs> that I'm looking at here in the screen. Um, but as far as, you know, interns and, and seasonals and such, um, those that would have worked full time in the park at some point, I was a supervisor for 30 out of those 40 years. So there's a, probably average around 10 new people a year. So I would, I would just kind of guess in the neighborhood of 300, just counting, again, interns, seasonals, people that um, would have been here for substantial periods of time. And then as we look at the, uh, the volunteers, um, goodness, um, uh, several hundred of those as well. 
So, and and Greg's impact has been so profound that uh, you know people call him Papa Mertz because he's like the the Papa who takes care of everybody. <laughs> Uh, so, so Greg, as you think back on your, your park service career, um, what's been your most rewarding aspect of all that? Um, watching, um, people grow. Um, and, uh, interestingly, as you helped to participate in one of our uh, staff members tried to contact as many of the folks that came through our doors as possible. And, uh, Beth Parnitza, who is down now as the chief historian at Appomattox Courthouse, commented, she asked me once what my, what I felt the best thing about the job was and says that I commented that it was watching people grow. So I wasn't, wasn't surprised at that, but it's um, great to um, especially try to help folks along that might be on a little bit different path. A good friend of ours, for example, um, was someone who after going through walking tour training said, oh, I don't understand how to do this and told her mother that and her mother encouraged her to stick it out. And when I went on one of her programs, it's like, Katie, that's one of the most amazing programs I've ever seen. That is so unique, so creative. And she, that's when she shared with me, said, I didn't think I could do this. Um, so it's great to encourage uh, someone uh, to do something different. We also had a fairly recent intern who when we asked him to, to turn in an outline of his program or of his walking tour, um, it was very sketchy. So we said, you need to go back to the drawing board. Came back with um, one that was doubled in size, but was still sketchy. So we said, well, let's go out and talk about your program. Well, that was his means of communicating. So after we did that, he, uh, he gave the program and interesting, he was a, from a local college. So his professor actually came by at the end of semester and asked, what did you do? I could, I could tell at the end of the semester, it was a fall semester. So he was with us in you know, September and October when it was busy. And so when she saw him back in you know, November and December, it's like, this is a completely different student. What happened? Um, so. Uh, now those those kind of stories are those that I think are the most rewarding. I tell everybody I can. I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for Greg Mertz. Uh, you know, since I came to Fredericksburg as a, uh, a volunteer, uh, brought there by my daughter, and you know, you put us through training and you nurtured us, and then you gave us extra opportunities. You gave me extra opportunities and just a lot of encouragement and nurturing. And you were there to answer questions and, well, hey, try this resource or try looking there and just lots of, uh, lots of great mentorship. And I, you know, I think about what a gift that is, uh, you know, and, and to think that you've, you've been able to do that for hundreds and hundreds of people, that's a profound impact. Um, where have some of your former seasonals and interns and employees gone off to since, since being under your wings? Um, well, in addition to Beth going off to be a chief of interpretation at Appomattox Courthouse, Becky Oaks, at just about the same time that Beth left, went to become chief of interpretation at uh, Martin Van Buren. Um, one of the things that kind of uh, came out recently is just really how many um, PhDs are out there that really started off here. It ended up being, I think, quite a few more than I 
had suspected. Um, on C-SPAN, just uh, sometime within the past year, I saw uh, uh, Angela Diaz, who is at a university in Utah. Um, and um, uh, there's well, Pete, Pete Carmichael up at Gettysburg College and Barton Myers at Washington and Lee and David Preston at the Citadel. Uh, um, uh, Lauren Thompson at uh, McKendry and near St. Louis. Um, several that are out there. I shouldn't start naming people because I'll undoubtedly miss so many. Um, it just kind of uh, became obvious recently as we started talking about that, just how many folks that are teaching in colleges um, or did, did something at a park as an undergrad or in working on their masters. And I think about how valuable that training is when you're learning how to do tours and how to organize a program. And that's very much what you have to do to organize a lecture and then get up in front of people and present that in a way that, that's logical. So I mean, it's such a transferable skill set to learn tour training and then take that into a classroom. Yeah, one of the, one of the comments that was made at my retirement luncheon was uh, by Eric Mink, um, our cultural resource management specialist. He says, you can tell when you go to a, a, a Civil War conference and there are different speakers uh, which ones went through interpretive training because <laughs> he said that, you know, he's a traditional academic person will get out their paper and read it. But uh, he said, if there's somebody that's been in this park, no, uh, that's not how they will present their, uh, their program, even in an academic setting, they will um, uh, utilize more of an interpretive style. Yeah. Well, and, you know, one of the things that you've pointed out through your training is, you know, when you're out there with a bunch of people, uh, you don't have the opportunity to have notes with you. You can't read from a script. You have to know the story well enough to talk about it. But then you also have to not be afraid to say, I don't know that. Let's go back to the visitor center and I can look that up for you. Yeah, if if somebody has to rely on notes. Uh, I feel that the, the message is too complicated for them to comprehend just by, by listening. Um, so if someone's going to be presenting orally, um, it really does need to be in a, a conversational style. Now, you had the chance to present your interpretation training, uh, not only at Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania, but for other parks as well. Uh, must be uh, something good in the water. They want, to, want you to bring it with you. <laughs> Where else have you had the chance to take your training show on the road? Um, I guess the most unique from a, a former intern who was down at Drayton Hall near Charleston in South Carolina. Um, there was a day or maybe it was a week when they kind of shut down to clean the house and do some other things, but uh, um, asked me to, to go down and spend the day um, kind of going over some interpretive techniques. Um, so that's the most unique one. Now, I know that um, once upon a time, you were a fresh-faced young fella getting ready for a park service career or hoping to. Uh, and I remember that you, you told me that you, you had a, an interesting strategy for trying to break in uh, and then sort of learned that maybe that wasn't quite the best way to break in. Can you share that story for me, please? Sure. In the pre-computer pre age, um, we had to fill out uh, identical, two identical applications where you, you know, take a pencil and fill in the bubbles and, and the like. And 
send that into the Park Service. Now you can literally apply for any summer Park Service job that you want to, but back then you're limited to selecting two. And my thought was that everybody that's interested in the Civil War is going to want to apply to Gettysburg. And that for someone like me that had a broad interest and would be happy working at any Civil War site, uh, my strategy was to try to select what I thought were probably the two most obscure of the Civil War battles in the Park Service system. So I applied to Wilson's Creek and to Kennesaw Mountain and did not hear from either of them the first summer that I applied. So I went down to, uh, to Wilson's Creek and um, ran into uh, uh, the Mr. Hatcher down there. And I explained to him my strategy and uh, Rick Hatcher said, well, I, you know, I understand where you're coming from, but you applied to two very small parks. And he said, here at Wilson's Creek, we have only two people that provide interpretive services in the summer. And we happened to hire the same two people back from last year. So his advice to me was you need to apply to a bigger park, one that's likely to have some turnover. And of course, then his classic example of why I should be sure to apply to Gettysburg, the place I thought I should avoid at all costs. And so I applied there and um, it just so happens that that same winter in November of that, uh, that winter, uh, Mamie Eisenhower passed away and uh, the Eisenhower home is right next to the Gettysburg battlefield. So that was now going to open up in the summer of 1980, my first uh, season. So they were hiring more people than ever before, uh, some to uh, fill the shoes of people they promoted, like Scott Hartwig, for example. When I went there in 1980, that was his first year as a permanent employee. Um, for many that may know him. And uh, so they had holes in their ranks on the battlefield, plus new uh, summer jobs at Eisenhower. So they are hiring probably more new people for the summer than ever before. And I was the last one that they selected for the summer of 1980. <laughs> I, you know, I suppose it's not an okay thing to say like, oh, good thing Mamie passed away, but uh, that certainly changed your trajectory in a significant way. Yeah, it's just the, you know, the, the timing is such that I got advice to apply to Gettysburg in a year when Gettysburg was hiring a, a lot of people. So uh, I, I wanted to, to, to thank Rick Hatcher a few years ago. I saw him at one of um, Chief Historian Ed Barris's birthday parties, and I was walking over, and my wife called me to take a picture of her with Ed Barris. And by the time I turned back to tell Rick the impact he's had on my career, he was gone. So I still need to catch him sometime. <laughs> Thank him. <laughs> so uh, you ended up at, at Eisenhower, not a Civil War park, even though you're as excruciatingly close to a civil park as you could be at. Um, what went through your mind and, and what was that experience like for you? The... You know, one of the things that is important in interpretation is to try to get the visitor excited in the story. Often that is one of the hardest battles, uh, no pun intended, but have people come on the battlefield and, and kind of get hooked in the story. The people that lined up to come to the Eisenhower home that first year 
were the people that already knew him. They voted for him. They served under him. They were so thrilled to go through that house. It was infectious. So it was a completely different story than what we're typically used to, trying to, again, uh, get somebody interested in certain, they're already interested as they're walking in. So they were absolutely thrilled. I'm sure today, working there today has got to be dramatically different than when I'd worked there. We, I'm sure the interpreters there do have to devote a fair amount of time to explaining just who this guy Eisenhower was to the people that walked through their door. I didn't have to do that. It was, it was uh, so easy to uh, connect with and help, uh, help make those uh, folks happy and, and, and thrilled that they were there. They were already thrilled stepping in there. It was um, just uh, uh, like uh, getting a hanging curveball and hitting it out of the park every time. I suppose for someone who maybe didn't have a background in Eisenhower, like suddenly you've got pretty high expectations you have to meet. So you have to become an, an Eisenhower expert in a way. Yeah, um, well, I read uh, his book, At Ease. That was one of the first things to do. And that was, that really showed his personality, which is really what most of those people wanted to come through. I mean, for the, the veterans that served under him, I didn't have to be an expert on uh, what he did in World War II or even an expert in his presidency. They, they wanted to know what, what he was like as, as a person. And um, so uh, that's, that's really uh, where most of our, our focus was, or at least mine. So you eventually were able to make a transition to a Civil War park. Uh, how did that come about? Um, there, uh, since many of the people that started at Eisenhower um, had been seasonals on the battlefield, um, it just it just kind of waited to whenever there was an opening on the battlefield and then kind of, um, you kind of indicated your interest and was able to transfer over. So I think I was at Eisenhower, I mean, of the four years that I spent there, I was probably at Eisenhower about a year and a half, year and three quarters. and on the battlefield for about two and a half years, something like that. And, and how did the experience at Eisenhower translate to inform your later experience doing Civil War history? Um, well, one of the most interesting things that I can, uh, can think of is when Eisenhower was in the White House, he had, and apparently maybe it's even kind of a, a, a habit that you put portraits of your four favorite people up. Well, Eisenhower had a portrait of Robert E. Lee hanging in the White House and uh, was challenged by a, a doctor from the state of New York, a dentist, I think, um, asking him how he could have uh, somebody who um, was considered to be by him a traitor to the United States hanging in the Oval Office of the White House. And so, um, I know Eisenhower wrote to him uh, saying that he considered um, Lee and all Confederates to be men, men of probity, character, and public standing, and that it really wasn't until the Civil War ended to show that secession was not proper and that all Lee and all Confederates were acting what they felt their constitutional rights were. And not only is that a story that I have, but one of the important ways of dealing with controversial issues when speaking with visitors 
is to try to, as I say, stay in the, the moderator role, not to um, try to argue one side or the other. And it's important to use the voices of others, um, authorities, um, if you will, to uh, try to share some of those point of views. And so by using the words of Eisenhower, somebody that's respected. So there's been, to back up, there've been many times when people come in and will say, you know, you put Robert E. Lee on a pedestal in this visitor center, everything seems to praise him. Why is that? And so one of the, one of the methods for trying to help someone understand that is to say, well, here's how uh, one personality who was challenged in a similar way of um, his admiration of Lee, how he put it. Um, again, that helps to make sure that we don't get into um, an argument with someone. It's, we can stay in the middle and um, here's one view and here's another. And then particularly for some people that really wanna help understand the other point of view. How is it that people really look this way? Um, so uh, that's that's the most direct way I can think of that I took some of the my um, experience at Eisenhower and use it on the Civil War battlefield. And it seems like you know that's very much about context. You know, if, if someone were to walk in there and complain about Robert E. Lee, well, look, it is Ike's house, and that's the way he wanted it, or it's Ike's White House. You know, and and so the idea is to interpret that moment in Ike's history, not. You know, our version today of what we wanted Ike to be back then, um, you know, and sort of avoid presentism by using those voices of the past and, and voices of, of context is really important. I'm sure you've run into situations as an interpreter where, um, you know, particularly as, as politically charged as things can get, where, um, you know, you have to, to find a way to navigate through some of that. Um, how challenging is that for you without necessarily getting into any specific politics, but how challenging is that to, to serve as a moderator in that kind of context? Well, in a word, it's exceedingly difficult because one of the um, first things that we really need to try to do is figure out, is this a person that is asking us a question and genuinely want to understand um, uh, why um, things seem to be in this particular way and want to understand uh, how uh, there, you know, what another way of looking at that same topic might be. Is it someone that is trying to convince us of their point of view and are not interested in a dialogue? Um, is, it, um, is it someone that just wants to uh, get this off of their chest? Um, it's so it's very difficult to know exactly where to come down on, on many of these uh, issues where controversy is brought up. Sometimes it's best just to listen, um, but kind of the strategies whenever somebody comes in, hopefully you can find something that you can agree with on, on someone. If, um, even if someone, um, uh, say, for example, the same situation just cited um, feels that you shouldn't praise Robert E. Lee because he fought against the United States. Um, you can see if they um, appreciate that one of the reasons why he's interpreted is because he was a still, skilled general and then point out that even the military 
um, modern military will come on staff rides to battlefields to study excellent military leadership, regardless of the, the cause that they were fighting for. Um, so look to see if there's some kind of common ground that you can find uh, with anybody, and you generally can, and then try to uh, take the discussion from there. That reminds me of, of one of the key things that you taught us um, is, you know, meet visitors where they're at, ask questions. You know, sometimes people come in the door and you want to inflict upon them everything you know about the battle or the park, whatever, but it's really important to like ask them questions to find out how much they already know, what they want to know, what they want to see, and, and really meet them where they're at to build on uh, their experience so that they have a good time. Oh, exactly. Um, the having good questioning strategies are uh, very important, not only just to kind of break the ice and uh, establish rapport with the visitors, but then kind of find out some critical things uh, ranging from how much time do you have to spend to um, how familiar you might be with the Civil War. Is this a first Civil War battlefield you visited? Or And uh, yeah, get an idea of uh, whether, uh, no, we just got off the interstate because the traffic is backed up northbound on a Sunday afternoon going to Washington, D.C., or whether it's, um, yeah, this is our third day in this park and we uh, just spent three days in Gettysburg before coming down here. Uh, finding out those type of things can be very, very helpful as you're um, assisting someone in planning their stay. Now, you eventually made your way from Gettysburg down to Fredericksburg. How did that transition happen? Well, when I started training up at Gettysburg, um, one of my new classmates up there was a fellow named John Heiser, who just recently uh, retired from working full-time at Gettysburg. But he had worked down in Fredericksburg for several years before transferring up as a summer kind of temporary employee. And one of the things that happened during training, there would be times when um, the person conducting the training for us would, especially if we ran into you know, something that was kind of touchy, they would turn to John Heiser and say, how does Bob Crick, the chief historian down at Fredericksburg, how does he handle that? And um, in my tenure up there, it became obvious that the chief historian Bob Crick and the Fredericksburg operations were viewed by their staff as kind of the right way to do things. And so I, I just was always kind of indoctrinated with this. And uh, so when there was a chance to apply to Fredericksburg, as soon as I kind of wrapped up my, my master's degree, which I got uh, evenings uh, while working in Gettysburg, um, the year that I wrapped that up, I applied for a uh, two positions right away, and one was uh, an opening in Fredericksburg. So I was able to uh, land that and uh, again, stayed there uh, ever since. <laughs> A variety of different positions, but I have been at, uh, only worked at the, at the three parks, uh, Eisenhower, Gettysburg, and Fredericksburg. Now, I'm convinced that once you walk out of the building the last time, the whole park will just sort of pop apart at the seams without the Greg Mertz glue holding it all together. <laughs> well, if you go to my office building now, it looks like it's falling apart. So they've, uh, we, have, we have been doing a construction project. They dug around the entire Fredericksburg 
Battlefield Visitor Center to put in new drainage. So, uh, yeah, I'm afraid, yeah, there, there might be some people come the day after I retire and look at the construction zone and, and feel that, <laughs> that it's falling apart. <laughs> just coincidental, folks. Oh, sure, certainly. It's just a coincidence. So, you know, I know how passionate you are about history, um, and yet your career took you into administration. Um, and, you know, I know that's a common way for people to advance. Um, but in some ways, you know, and you and I have talked about this, how that takes you away from the front lines where you really love to be. Um, you know, what do you gain and, and what do you give up by making that sort of transition, do you think? Well, I... I think the important thing is to try to maintain some some balance. The the best piece of career advice that I ever received was from Bob Crick when he um, promoted me to be the the site supervisor. He said that um, you're being placed in a position where you and only you are responsible for so many of uh, of the things that go along with this job, but uh, and well, and he said, and it will be very simple for you to simply focus on those things. But if you do that, you're going to be miserable. You need to take some time to go out and give tours now and then. You need to give some talks to Civil War roundtables. Um, you need to make sure you do the, some of the things that attracted you to this uh, to begin with. And um, there have been times when I've booked myself a tour and that time rolls up and I'm saying to myself, why did you do this? The <laughs> workload is so heavy. You, you must be crazy to have agreed to do this. And then after you spend uh, the day out on the battlefield with a Civil War Roundtable or whatever, you go back to the office, you're like, wow, that was just so refreshing. That was, that was great. So, one of the secrets is to um, um, keep uh, making sure that you do something in your job that you enjoy. And the last time that we had an all hands meeting, um, that's one of the things that I said to the entire park staff, that that was the best career advice I ever had. And I said, I encourage you to do that, that to make sure you, you continue to do what attracted you to your, your job to begin with and make sure that you have a chance to do really enjoyable things. So when you have the chance to get out and explore these four parks, and, and I'll, I'll widen that when, lens in just a moment, but when you get out and, and explore the four parks that you've worked at for so long, uh, is there a particular place you like to go to get away or to, to retouch base with things? Um, there's, there really isn't anything that purposefully comes to mind, but um, I would say I more frequently go out to the, the Bloody Angle area. Um, partly might be because it, it, uh, it is close by to, to where I live, but um, I know I, I took one of my cousins out there one time and um, you know stressed the, the lay of the land and that depression that where hundreds and thousands of Union soldiers gathered just yards away from the bloody angle and different times would surge out of there to make the attack. And uh, she made the comment to me that uh, 
she'll never look upon a ravine in quite the same way as she did there. So that's one of the places where I think the terrain is, is stronger. And even though I know the story, if I'm walking down into that ravine, I still will pause and look around and say, wow, you know, I can't see any of the Confederate line down here. And just, um, um, so I guess I, I look for the places where the, the terrain kind of speaks to you. Now, I know one of the other battlefields in this region that you like a lot uh, that's outside of the, the borders of the park is Brandy Station. Um, tell us a little bit about your, your love affair with that battlefield. Um, well, there were three of us working at Fredericksburg, myself, Frank O'Reilly, and Ray Brown. Ray Brown has just returned to this park from Manassas, and we heard of the, the plan to build an, an, an office industrial park on the Brandy Station battlefield. And uh, we, at that time, there really were not very many purely, if any, purely preservation organizations. And uh, we actually went out to the, uh, the county courthouse and looked at some of the maps and we were kind of wondering, gee, is or do we need to kind of try to step up and do something ourselves to preserve this battlefield? And next thing we knew, we ran into the people who were already uh, several steps ahead of us. Uh, we became friends with Bud Hall and uh, B and Page Mitchell, the um, um, B Mitchell, the original president of the Brandy Station Foundation. So uh, after a while of showing up at the at the hearings and listening to what was going on and speaking when there was an opportunity, uh, the, the board asked me if I would, would join. So I got involved with uh, being a board member and eventually a vice president of the Brandy Station Foundation. Yeah. So that's kind of how I we got involved in that. Yeah, a threat and at a time when um, APCWS, the Association for the Preservation of Civil War Sites, one of the two parent companies of what is now the American Battlefield Trust, got started. A group of historians that met in Fredericksburg and um, um, they knew Civil War battlefields but didn't know fundraising and knew that anything that we needed to get involved in couldn't be one step ahead of the bulldozer. So even though the um, um, one of the parent organizations and uh, a merger of the two parent organizations would do astronomical work out at Brandy Station. At that time, the, the young um, fledgling APCWS knew it couldn't um, do a, a whole lot out there because it just couldn't afford it. And it seems like preservation just, you know, the, the preservation challenges uh, in the Fredericksburg area in particular just continue to shift and change. Uh, I'm sure you remember the days when there are wide open fields that are now uh, housing developments. Um, what do you see kind of as the, the, the challenge for preservation moving forward? Um, there, there's still some good pristine land that is uh, available in the Fredericksburg area. Um, I, I saw your, uh, your video on the, the land um, uh, right behind the Confederate line in the wilderness. Um, uh, 
one of the things when I was doing research on the wilderness, I realized that in Battles Alabama Brigade that uh, most people got the order of battle wrong, that there was a veteran unit that because its commander was um, not thought to be very talented, was sent down to guard a prison camp while a, a new unit, the 61st Alabama, came and uh, went to the wilderness. So uh, um, I kind of am very interested in this Alabama brigade that was in the second line and when the Federals broke through the Alabamans counterattack. That's a fascinating story back there. I look forward to the day when both sides of the highway are, are preserved and we can actually walk that ground and walk that whole counterattack. So that's just one of, of many examples in the area um, of land that can still be, be preserved without doing massive scene restoration. I guess in the future, that's the, once we preserve all the pristine land um, and have it interpreted in a way that it can be understood next turn to some of the areas that have been developed and and um, maybe try to restore them. But I think that will be a long time. I don't think it's uh, something that my generation will ever see. Yeah. It's nice to think though that it might be, there might be enough projects left for the next generation as opposed to having everything get all bulldozed and poof, it's gone. And then, you know, uh, it is ongoing work for certain. Mm. So one battlefield we have not talked about, but it's, I suppose, the battlefield where your origin story takes place is Shiloh. And we're far away from Shiloh in central Virginia, but uh, you actually grew up not too, too far away. Um, tell us a little bit about your relationship with that battlefield, please. Well, I grew up in St. Louis, so it's about, uh, I think it was like a six-hour drive or so from Shiloh. And there was a, uh, a Boy Scout leader that laid out um, uh, six different trails on the Shiloh battlefield. So my scout troop went down there every single spring. Um, so I took a different trail each time that I went down there. And um, I even have a specific moment that I can uh, look to that uh, was very critical in getting me in the, the right direction. When you go down there, it's, you know, one of the original five Civil War battlefields, so loads of monuments. It's a very impressive site just to look at it, even without understanding one iota of what happened there. So I remember one time we were riding through the battlefield, and I asked my adult leader who was driving if we were going to be going past that long row of cannon and one of my youth leaders said, it's called Ruggles Battery, as if, you know, don't you know this? Um, and that, that, that really stung. And I, uh, shortly after that, started making myself some note cards and uh, I would get, uh, there were like, I think they cost like 35 cents, these thin little booklets that you could get from the government printing office called the Historical Handbook Series. So. I got each of those on the Civil War battlefields and that grew to obviously thicker volumes and multi-volumes and things like that. But that's kind of how I, I really started um, delving into it. I, I was impressed with the place, but I really had not made the connection. I didn't have the understanding yet and that uh, helped me to 
jump into it. And uh, as I retire here in Fredericksburg, one of the interesting things is that Daniel Ruggles, from whom Ruggles Battery is named, is buried in Fredericksburg. He um, married uh, someone from the county just to east of Fredericksburg, King George County, even though Daniel Ruggles, his Confederate general, was from Massachusetts. He married a Virginia girl. And, uh, and so uh, I kind of got started with Ruggles and I'm ending with Ruggles. <laughs> yeah, and we're recording this interview just a couple days before your retirement. And it didn't surprise me at all that like the door will close on your office and like you're heading to the airport to drive to, or heading to the car to head out to Shiloh the, uh, two days later. Is that correct? Yeah, one of the very first tour of Shiloh, and because of the COVID, we're anticipating in the Clark area rather than aeroplanes. So I really um, need to go back there and see where I can stop with maybe 20 cars. Um, I'm anticipating some of them stop. I would have made two things. I can't make make 20 cars. And I would not have been comfortable just showing up a day or two before the tour and then trying to figure out what I'm going to do. So, so. Also, next week, week is the uh, actual anniversary of that. We just talked on April 6 and 7. The National Park Service is in the middle of They're having special programs. So I'm going to, almost as soon as I retire, and stay in my car and drive my child and participate in the and the anniversary programs. Uh, I would not have been comfortable probably writing a book if I had not gone there for the one fiftieth anniversary and gone on on the programs and got before I uh to write my book, I've been I've been doing a lot more reading than I on Shiloh I had for a long time. Um, so, so, yes, yes I'm uh, looking forward to getting in there, there seeing what their park historians have to say, learning some, some new things, and uh, uh, taking, taking a look, a look at the, the Park Cars, park cars and, and go back in the day, my first ever official Shiloh Just like any Army campaign, it's all about the logistics when you're doing a tour. <laughs> yeah, it really is. So you have mentioned the book, um, which we actually have not explicitly mentioned in this uh, interview yet, but it's the Emerging Civil War series book, Attack at Daylight and Whip Them, The Battle of Shiloh. And as we were looking for someone to write the Shiloh book for the book series, I thought Greg Mertz loves that battlefield. He would write a loving book about that battle in a tour. And uh, really the, what you came back with uh, was exactly what I was hoping for, you know, a nice, in some ways, a love letter to the Shiloh battlefield. And a very uh, careful, well thought out way to explore that battlefield. But what did you like about writing that book? Well, um, you may remember when you asked me about it, I kind of said, you know, that's, there are other people out there that know a lot more about Shiloh than I do. I almost tried to talk you out of it, even though I was absolutely thrilled that you asked me to, but um, um yeah, I really enjoyed having that opportunity. And one of the things I really like about the Emerging Civil War series is the 
guidebook element to it. Um, the aspect of not just telling the story, but again, as an interpreter, trying to tie that to what you have. Um, so while there have been some other guidebooks, um, many of them were specifically set up as, as guidebooks. And I thought um, one of the things I really enjoyed about this was trying to tie the two together. And the challenge was, you know, it's, it's kind of easy to fight a chronological, to, to explain an action chronologically begin at the beginning and move step by step through it. But when you're also maneuvering people through a battlefield on a tour, it's impossible to do things chronologically. So that was also an interpretive challenge to how do I start at the end of a two-day battle. I'm starting at the end of the first day. Um, that's the kind of the first tour stop, and then we're working our way out. And so how can I set it up to explain the battle in a, a manner that seems to flow and, um, and still take people through it so that they're not running back and forth and having confusing directions? So... Um, Yes, I, I, I enjoyed doing that. It was that, but that's what I found as a challenge of it. I'm absolutely a huge fan of the book. And if you like the guidebook sections, I'll just point back to the guy who gave me my interpretive training. He's a fellow named Greg Mertz. And so tying all of that stuff to the text and the ground uh, is really grounded in training that I got from Greg Mertz. <laughs> Greg, um, so last question for you today. Um, What's next for you after retirement and this upcoming um, Shiloh tour? What's next? Um, I'm uh, not exactly sure, but it might uh, connect to um, your question before about, about Brandy Station. Um, I uh, have had uh, some conversations with American Battlefield Trust about the fact that for quite some time they've been discussing uh, a possibility of a Virginia State Park covering Brandy Station and Cedar Mountain. And um, they uh, have a friends group to support it. And an important part of what I did at the park was run the, the volunteer program. Uh, so one of the things that they're looking for is someone that might be a chair or a co-chair of, of a friends group for uh, the state park. And I'd be glad to get involved in, in something like that. So that's uh, something that, that has been uh, tossed kind of in my direction that I'm interested in. Um, and who knows, maybe emerging civil war has other battlefield topics they would like uh, somebody to explore and write. You can write your meal ticket for me. Let me tell you. You tell me what you want to do and I will make it happen. <laughs> So, Greg, it's been a real treat to chat with you today. Um, my uh, admiration and affection for you is well known, but uh, it's always such a great privilege to be able to uh, sit and spin some yarns with you. Thank you so much tonight. Thank you. I've appreciated your friendship over the years. You're definitely uh, a part of, uh, of what we've done at Fredericksburg. I, I don't do a lot of independent things in my job. I work with a whole lot of other people. Uh, whether they're permanent uh, historians that are my subordinates or interns or volunteers, but you've been an important part of, uh, 
uh, what we've accomplished at Fredericksburg, and I thank you for that. You and, you and your daughter, both. So thank you. Oh, my privilege, absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, Greg Mertz, thanks so much for joining us tonight, Greg. And of course, some thank yous before we wrap up. Thank you to our engineer, Jackson Mikowski, for his work in piecing together the puzzles that make up the podcast. Thanks also to the Second South Carolina String Band for providing theme music for the podcast. You can find them online at civilwarband.com. And don't forget to join us online at emergingcivilwar.com, where we've got fantastic free content every day from a great variety of historians with different interests, backgrounds, writing styles, all for free, and we want you part of that conversation. Join us at EmergingCivilWar.com. Thanks today to our guest, Greg Mertz. I'm Chris Mikowski. Thanks to you for joining us. We'll see you online and on the battlefield. <laughs> <laughs>